We are so glad that you are here and worshiping with us here at Heights. And uh, we're glad to see so many faces that may be new here. And we pray that you get to know some people here because I believe the people here at Heights are some of the friendliest, most godly people you're going to meet sincerely. And uh, hopefully you're going to find some good fellowship here. We'd love to, for you to become part of our family. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, what we're doing as a church Right now, what we're doing is we are um, going through the Bible in five years period of time. This is something that we've taken on as, as a project. We just actually finished that earlier this year, and we're starting all over again. And by going through the Word of God in five years period of time, how we do that is as a congregation, we come together and we read six days a week. Now, we're kind of in a, in a stoppage of our reading as we're in the Easter season right now, but in a week or so, we're going to pick up again and start our reading. And what we do is as we read just a little bit of the Scripture together uh, each day of the week, when we come back on Sunday, our message is based upon that section of Scripture that we've read. And so we want you to be a part of that too. If you are interested in, in finding out more about that, you can go to the information desk. They have the reading plans for the entire year. Uh, we have a $3 suggested donation, but if you can't afford that, we just want you to join with us. We also have notebooks that have that as well. Uh, if you're a note taker, how many of you are note takers? Raise your hand. All right. If you're a note taker, then you're going to might want one of those notebooks that you can write down all the notes uh, from your study, from the sermons, from other things that are going on throughout the year. And there's a suggested donation of ten dollars for the set. But again, if you can't afford it, we, we want to encourage you concerning that and just say, take that. We want you to be a part of this journey with us. Well, as we do this all together. We have been answering some questions this Easter season. And Good Friday, the question that we answered was, is sin really this bad? Talking about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as we did that, we, we started going through the scriptures that talked about how desperate our real need was. That we had made ourselves enemies of God. That we were objects of of wrath, that in reality the sacrifice of Jesus was needed for you and me, that we might be made righteous, not because of ourselves, but because of what he did on the cross. And now we come to Resurrection Sunday, but there's a question that has been asked of today as well. And it's this, is the resurrection really necessary? Because if Jesus, if his death was enough to forgive us of our sins, why is there any need for a resurrection at all? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And of course, as believers in Christ, we believe that his resurrection was absolutely necessary, was a need for us. But why? It's one thing to say it because all of us can say, yeah, Jesus died for our sins. How many of us have, have said that to somebody else, that he died for our sins? Why was he raised? That's a big question. 
isn't it? And it's one that we need to know how to answer, especially if we're going to celebrate well. I want to celebrate well this Easter, don't you? I think we've been doing a great job so far. We've had a baptism. We've had some awesome worship. But do we know why this day is necessary? I believe there's four reasons why this resurrection is necessary that we can look at from the Scriptures today. So we're going to be in the Scriptures a lot. You know why? Because it's not my word. It's His. And His word is where we need to begin and end. The first thing, the first reason why I believe that the resurrection is necessary is because of the result of sin. Let me explain that. Let me unpack that a little bit. Because as we go into the Scriptures, as we did on Good Friday... And as we go into the scriptures, we see phrases such as this. If we look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we look toward the end of the chapter, we see a definition that Paul gives. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. The sting of death is sin. In other words, sin is empowered brings forth death. That's the sting of death. James puts it a different way. If we look at James chapter 1, he puts it like this. Chapter 1, and verse, starting in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. The, excuse me. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Excuse me. We look in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, very familiar passage of Scripture for us. Just want to read the first part of it. For the wages of sin is death. Everything that we look at concerning sin says that the ultimate reality of sin, the ultimate outworking of sin is death. That the reason that death exists in this world and that evil exists in this world and the deterioration of things has to do primarily with this function of sin. If we go back to the very beginning in Genesis, we see the same thing. Because we go back to Genesis chapter 2 and we look as we see this microcosm of day 6 being being pushed out by God. We see Adam is created. And this is before Eve is created. But we see in verse 15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. That seems like a harsh punishment for eating fruit. Some of you parents are just like, I want my kids to eat fruit. 
But this particular fruit here is deadly, not because necessarily that the fruit in and of itself is deadly, but sin is. See, there were five commands that we can look in the first two chapters of Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Take care of the garden in which God had placed him. Name all the animals. And then finally, do not eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. A breaking of any of those commands would amount to sin. That would be a disobedience to God. But which one was Adam and Eve tempted with? They're only tempted with one. So this is where the warning comes in. Not because the fruit in and of itself is going to cause death. It's because sin is going to cause death. This is the reason why. Now, getting back to the point, the result of, if the result of sin is death, then the one who destroys the work of sin must necessarily overcome death. If he doesn't, then has he destroyed has he destroyed sin? We have no proof of it. The proof of sin is in death. The only way to overcome it and to overcome sin and to say sin has been defeated is to live. Is to overcome death. This is the first reason. But there's more. But wait, there's more. Secondly, the resurrection is really necessary because Jesus and the disciples said that the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, said that the Messiah must die and be raised three days later. Very specific language. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at a number of these places where Jesus says this. The first one going to Luke's account of the resurrection in Luke chapter 24. And we see two men walking to Emmaus. And as they're walking to Emmaus, Jesus kind of joins them stealthily as he's walking along. And they're asking about, you know, what, what's going on today? And one of the disciples, whose name is Cleopas, begins to answer. Verse 18, he asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? I find it funny he's talking to Jesus, right? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. A little bit later, when he's with the twelve or with the eleven that are left, 
he finds himself saying the exact same things down in verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. In John's account of the resurrection, before these things have taken place, when we see John and Peter running to the tomb, John won the race. But Peter was bold and walked into the tomb first. And as they're contemplating what it is that they're seeing, we see that John finally gets the nerve to walk into the tomb himself. And he says these words, which are really interesting to read. In verse 8, he says, finally, the other disciple, meaning himself, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The great defense of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ begins this way. By Paul saying this, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. We see whether it be Jesus, whether it be His disciples, whether it be Paul who is a disciple of Christ who becomes an apostle untimely born as he would say. They all say the same thing. The death, the burial, the resurrection, specifically three days later, are all testified in the Old Testament Scriptures. This is why there had to be a resurrection, because God has already prophesied this is going to take place. That would make God out to be a liar. But I know what you're thinking. We've heard some of these, but the question is, where? I can read the Isaiah passage and know that it says that he died for my sins. But where do we get this idea of he was raised three days later? Where do we get the idea that there's a resurrection involved in these passages? We only get four places in Scripture that talk about that. Because as believers, when people ask us, is the resurrection really necessary? We need to know where to go. Because Jesus said... The scriptures testify that this had to happen. First one is found in Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is written by David. David was alive a thousand years before Jesus was born. It's pretty amazing. We're going to have two places we're going to be reading of David's Psalms. This is the first At the end of the psalm in verse 9, David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. While the first part of that statement talks about himself, the Holy One has nothing to do with him. It has to do with the promise of the Messiah that was coming through his line. 
You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Where is Jesus at now? At the right hand of the Father. Many have speculated that the idea of decay came in four days later, so he had to rise in three days. But there's something more specific we're going to look at in the scriptures that actually helps with that three-day notice. But this is one. It presupposes a resurrection. It presupposes that there's not going to be decay, but the one who is holy will be raised up and placed at the right hand of God. Psalm 22 is another one that we look at during this season. You know why? Because Jesus quotes it on the cross. The first part of the first verse of Psalm 22 says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we can read through the different portions of the scripture that we see fulfilled during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. He's pointing to himself, but he's pointing to the entirety of the psalm. So let's read some of the familiar passages that we do know, and then we're going to read some of the unfamiliar passages that maybe we don't know as well. Verses 7 and 8 say this, All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Didn't we see that? Didn't we see that in all the accounts of the cross, that they were hurling insults? Come down. Let's see if Elijah rescues him. Verses 16 through 18. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Did not all these things specifically take place at Jesus' crucifixion? And again, this is a Psalm of David. This is a thousand years before Jesus would even be on the scene. And it is to a T fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But what often gets overlooked as we read this psalm is what happens at the end of this psalm, starting in verse 21. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. 
he's heard the cry of his afflicted one. And he's not abandoned him. And we know what happened with Jesus as he's fulfilling Psalm 22, that he is put in the grave. The only way that this could happen is if he is raised up again to fulfill the end of this, where the people are praising what God has done through him. And that's not all. Of course, we can read Isaiah where we begin to see more overtly this idea that the one who suffered would also be raised up. And at the end of this passage of Scripture of the suffering servant that begins in Isaiah 52.10, and actually you can go all the way back to Isaiah 40. But in 52.10, we start reading about the suffering servant that goes all the way to the end of chapter 53. And in verse 10 of 53, it says this, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And here we see both the sacrifice of Christ and the promise of life. That he had poured himself out unto death and yet he's going to be numbered among those who are great. He's going to see his posterity. How is he going to see his posterity if he's dead? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Unless God has raised him back up to life again. And then finally, Hosea Chapter 6, Hosea is an interesting book. It's written to the people of Israel and this rebellious people of Israel that God is purchasing back for himself. Within the book of Hosea, we see Israel as foreshadowing the person of Jesus Christ. Because when we read in Hosea 11.1, we see that out of Egypt I called my son. The immediate reference is to that of Israel. But the fulfillment is actually found in Jesus Christ. And it's applied to Jesus by Matthew after Herod had killed all the, the newborns that were in Bethlehem in that area right there. They were escaped down to Egypt. And when they came up out of Egypt, they apply this scripture to Jesus. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And I believe it's from Hosea that we see the reference to the three days that Jesus says is found within the scriptures concerning him. Come, let us return to the Lord. Chapter 6 and verse 1. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. Surely as the sun rises, he will appear and he will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. And just as 
God would restore the fortunes of the people of Israel. We see very specifically, after two days, he will revive us. And after three, he will restore us. And why? That we may live in his presence. Without the sacrifice of Jesus and without him raising from the dead three days later, guess what? We have no guarantee, do we? We have no guarantee. But we look back in the word of God and we look back at the Old Testament where Jesus said these things are found and we can know that the resurrection was necessary. Third reason is this. Jesus himself said that he would die and rise from the dead. It's hard to be the sinless son of God if you're telling a lie. We see it in Matthew chapter 12. With some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Verse 38 said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation ask for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we look... We can look in all the synoptic gospels, but I want to look inside of Luke's gospel as Jesus is heading to Jerusalem and as he's getting ready for what is going to happen to him, the culmination of his ministry. Verse 31 of chapter 18, Jesus says this, and it's found in every one of the synoptic gospels. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. See, it's also mentioned in Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 20. But Luke includes this little detail that the disciples had no clue what he was talking about. And as we read through the Gospels, we can tell they really had no clue. But Jesus himself said that he would die and rise from the dead. So his resurrection is pretty necessary if he's wanting to be the sinless son of God, if he's wanting to be the promised Messiah that they were looking forward to. He has to fulfill the promises that he makes. And the fourth one is this. You can't give something you don't have. You can't give something you don't have. And Jesus was said to have life. Throughout the scriptures we see the claim that Jesus has life. And can give that life to whomever he pleases. John chapter 3.16 is probably the most famous of these, right? If I asked you guys to quote it, could we do it in unison? Don't have to. I don't know what version you guys are going to be doing. We'd be like some of you are going thous and thuses and others of us not doing that. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Who's saying this? Jesus. Jesus is saying he can impart eternal life to those who believe on him. He can only have that if he can truly give that, right? If he really has that, he can give it. If he doesn't really have that, he can't give it. I can say to you, Sam... I'm going to give you a million dollars. But you know I don't have a million dollars. You'd be like, is that life money? Is that monopoly money? What kind of money are you talking about? Because I know you're not talking real money because I've been to your house. You ain't got a million dollars. Just saying. You can't give somebody something you don't have. And neither can Jesus. And yet Jesus consistently says that he can give life. John chapter 5. Verse 21, he says this. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. It's a great promise, isn't it? It only works if he actually has that life to give. Down a few verses in verse 26, excuse me, in verse 24, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And if that wasn't enough of a claim... Jesus in John chapter 10, when he talks about himself being the good shepherd, says these words. Verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Not only does Jesus say that he has life and can impart it to whoever that he wants to give it to. He says he has life and that he has the power to lay down his own life and to take it up again. That no man has the power to take it away from him. You think the whips, you think the nails are the reason why Jesus died. He died because he laid down his life for you and me to taste sin and to destroy it by the power of the cross and his holy life because Jesus has life within himself. This is the command the Father has given him. What are we trusting Jesus for? Eternal life. If he doesn't have eternal life, he can't give it to you. He can't. And the only way for eternal life to be eternal life is to be unconquerable by death. And what do we see from Jesus? We see a Jesus who is raised from the dead. And so the resurrection is really a necessity because Jesus said he had life within himself. And he can grant that life to anyone who believes in him. 
to anyone he chooses. You know, belief in Jesus Christ, everything hinges on him raising from the dead. Everything. Everything we celebrate. This isn't just a minor celebration because of the fact that he died on the cross. We needed to see victory over death and sin, not just an acceptable sacrifice from God. We need not just the acceptable sacrifice, but we need to know that sin is destroyed. It's gone forever because of what he has done for you and I. Because he has life in and of himself. Jesus, his resurrection cannot be moderately important to us. It either means everything or it means nothing at all. And either all of what we're proclaiming, everything that we celebrate is 100% true or it doesn't matter. And there's no in between. C.S. Lewis talked about it because of these types of claims that are all throughout the Bible, both New and Old Testament, concerning the promise of the Messiah and the claims that Jesus made. He came to the conclusion that either Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord of heaven. He said, nobody who makes the claim that Jesus made and said the things that Jesus said could pass themselves off as just a good moral teacher. He's either a liar because none of these things are true, or he believes those lies and he's a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg. Or he's Lord of all. You can do a lot of things with Jesus, but you cannot say he's moderately important. You can't say he's just a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis ends that quote by saying, don't give us a patronizing nonsense that he's a good moral teacher. He didn't give us that option and he didn't intend so. Which makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection of supreme importance for people who are seeking out the truth. And let me tell you why. There's a lot of people who try to attack the Christian faith going after small little things like Balaam's donkey. Balaam's donkey talked. I can't believe that because it's Balaam's donkey. I can't believe the strange miracles that seem to happen or a serpent that's talking in the, in the Garden of Eden. You know, those things pale into comparison with, with the idea that a man who claimed to be God entered into our reality, this world right here, proclaimed himself to be God to come to take away the sins of the world and showed himself as such by dying on the cross and raising from the dead. If I can believe that, all the other stuff's pretty easy. If it's real, it means everything. You know why? Because through it, we can know that we are forgiven of our sins because Jesus conquered it. 
We can know that we have eternal life because Jesus has life within himself and he has promised it to all who believe in him. That is why this day, among every other day, is the celebration of every Christian because it means victory for us. It means union with God. It means restoration with this relationship that was fractured and broken and we could do nothing about it. And Jesus came and said, I'm not only the acceptable sacrifice, I'm going to prove that I have destroyed sin by destroying death because I have life in myself. And here's the good news. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have this eternal life. This is why we say he is risen. Amen. Is that not worth celebrating this day? If you don't know the goodness of God, we invite you even this day. What a great, what a great celebration of Easter this would be. That you would come down and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Hearing all of these things, and even if you're on the fence and you're a little skeptical, my encouragement to you is search out this, the foundation of faith. Did Jesus live? Did Jesus die? Did Jesus raise from the dead? Because if he did, it's of supreme, monumental importance. Nothing is more important than that. And we will rejoice with you as you seek out that answer because we believe God will prove himself true. Would you stand with us as we celebrate and end our celebration of this time together? If you would like prayer, we invite you to come down where our elders are going to be up front. We want you coming down in celebration and prayer. And if you need to come to know Jesus Christ, that's what this day is all about. God bless you all. And happy Easter. <laughs>